Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The Tenth Sunday After Trinity, Luke 19, 41-48. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, Acts 17:30. With this sermon, Paul one day appeared in Athens, that well-known, refined, educated city in Greece. In these words, the apostle demanded repentance, a change of heart and mind from all men, whoever and wherever they are. Is that not surprising? Are there not men who do not need to repent? Men who from their youth are so good-hearted and have lived so morally that nothing more can be demanded of them? If man still had the holiness he had when God created him, then people would not need repentance. Yes, then every person would only have to be admonished to remain in his holy and blessed state, use the powers which were lent him for good, and live according to the rule of the divine law. But it is not so. The whole human race is a fallen race. We find the story of this fall in the first chapters of the Holy Scripture. Since this fall into sin... Everyone has from birth a disposition which presents him from pleasing God. He cannot commune with God. He can never be saved. First of all, by nature, every person does not make God his God. He does not consider him his greatest good. He does not fear, love, and trust in him above all things, nor does he abstain from sinful deeds and do what is good only from fear and love of God alone. Every person now lives especially for this world and seeks in it, be it its joy or in its wealth or in its honor or in its wisdom, skill, and knowledge, his happiness and peace of heart. Finally, by nature, every person is now ruled by love of self, or rather, selfishness. By nature, he does not seek the welfare of his neighbor, but his own. In all his dealings, he goes by the selfish principle, everyone is his own neighbor. By nature, this disposition is found not only in a few people, perhaps only among the godless and wicked, but also, without exception, even among those who distinguish themselves by a stern morality, in whose life and works no person can find anything blameworthy, who pass everywhere for the best and noblest people. No one, therefore, can be saved in his natural state. He must first experience a change of heart receive a completely different spirit. God must become his highest good. He must come to the point where he does not live for this world,
but for the one to come. He does not seek his happiness, his rest, and the satisfaction of his soul in the things of this world, but in the one to come. He must no longer live for himself, but in love, sacrifice his whole life for his neighbor. You see, that is why Paul preached at Athens, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. Though they may live in this world like an angel, all who have not yet experienced such a repentance, such a change of, change of mind, are not Christians. They do not have God's grace. They are not on the way to eternal life. That which is born of flesh is flesh, says Christ, and he therefore adds, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, John 3. My friends, how important this is. How small the number of true Christians must be. How many, perhaps even among us, there may be, who have not yet experienced that necessary change of heart. How many may have remained in their natural condition or have again fallen back. Though it is sad when a person is still in his unchanged natural state, there are people who are in an even more wretched state. They are not only not converted, nor born again, nor sanctified and renewed, but they have sunk so far that there is little or no hope at all that they can ever be brought to repentance and saved. They are those who are in the dreadful state of obduracy. At one time, most of the citizens of Jerusalem were in this state. Today's gospel states that Christ shed tears over the sins and terrible fate which awaited them. Let us therefore use this opportunity to hear the warning about the dreadful state of obduracy. Luke 19:41-48. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So far our text. On the basis of this text, permit me to speak to you about the terrible sin of obduracy, wherein this sin consists, how a person falls into this state, and finally, when and how a person can still be freed from it. We pray. O oh Lord God, you have revealed in your holy word that a person can so harden himself that even you are not able to deliver him. Ah, uh, let us all be awakened and terrified when we consider this frightful truth that none of us willfully abuses your grace and thus lets himself be hardened through the deceit of sin. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from any of us, and if anyone has already driven the Spirit away through sin, love of the world, or unbelief, have pity on him. Create a new heart again in him, and give him a new spirit. Let none of the fallen remain in his sins, and none of those awakened from his sleep of sin despair. 
Yes, remember the blood of your Son, which he shed for our sins. Remember the covenant of grace which you made with us all in holy baptism, and remain faithful, even though we become unfaithful. Call us back every time we err. Lift us up whenever we fall. And finally, help us into your heavenly kingdom. Hear us for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. It is true, my friends, that the word obduracy does not appear in today's text. Yes, yet it describes in detail those who are in the state of obduracy from whom we can learn to know this condition. We read at the beginning of our text, And when Jesus Christ drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The first thing the weeping Christ says of the inhabitants of Jerusalem is that which belongs to their peace, their happiness, their salvation, is completely hidden from them. Although Christ had for years on end shown them the way to salvation in a friendly as well as a clear manner, and had confirmed his words with the most wonderful miracles, they still did not want to accept Christ's word. At last, they actually believed that Christ was a deceiver, and his doctrine was false and dangerous, that Christ was the Son of God, and that faith in him would save them. All that was completely hidden from them. It was an offense which they detested, a folly at which they laughed. That's not all. Christ continues, For the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. That is the second thing which Christ means when he says, Would that you, even you, had known that Christ's judgment would overtake them because they rejected Christ and his gospel. Even this the inhabitants of Jerusalem did not know or even suspect. They had silenced their consciences. Although Christ predicted the inevitable righteous judgment of God, they still did not believe it, considering all that as the empty threats of an enthusiast. Over that which Christ wept so sympathetically, they considered laughable. They thought, we are God's people. No evil can possibly overtake us. But still more. At the close of our text, we read that Christ was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. After that, they had become blind to that which belonged to their peace. After they had lost all fear of God's judgment, they fell from this sin into another without considering its sin. The most bitter enmity grew from their contempt of Christ until finally they plotted to murder him, the innocent, and did not rest until their bloodthirstiness was appeased by seeing Christ on the cross. In their example, we see the condition of a person who is hardened. He has fallen so far that he no longer knows what belongs to his peace. In vain, God's word is preached to him. His heart is hard as a rock. Though the gospel with all its strength and comfort is preached to him, Though Christ is presented ever so movingly in his love of sinners, and though he is in an ever so friendly and urgent manner incited and enticed, it does not move the hardened person. And though the law is preached to him in all its threatening severity, though God is described in his frightening righteousness and holiness, and though he is ever so earnestly admonished and warned, it does not move the hardened person. 
Though grace or wrath, life or death, blessing or curse, heaven or hell, salvation or damnation is presented to him, it is all the same to the hardened person. The way to salvation may be shown him ever so clearly, yet he is not convinced. No light falls into his soul. He remains in his darkness. Yes, the more he reads and hears God's word, the more foolish and offensive it becomes. The more firmly hatred and enmity against it entrench themselves in his heart. It becomes a savor of death unto death, because he becomes only the more hardened as the anvil by the hammer. Now, as little as God's word enlightens, awakens, and moves a hardened person to repent, so little do also the events of his life, which God permits him to experience. If all goes well, he does not let his heart become soft. The more love God shows him, the more secure, proud, and impudent he becomes, the more he believes that he is in no trouble. On the other hand, if things do not go well, he absolutely refuses to let himself be humbled. Then he murmurs against the ruler of his fate and insolently reviles the Almighty in heaven. Finally, he comes to the point where he no longer feels any sin. His conscience is branded. It is no longer carrying out its duty. It no longer accuses him. It has become silent. He does not only he does only what he wishes without fearing God's punishment. He becomes a declared enemy of Christ, his work, his Christians, and finally even persecutes them. The tears of anxious parents, brothers, sisters, former fellow believers, and friends are in vain. The hardened laughs at those who sympathize with him, and thus he hurries to meet the day of the revelation of God's righteous judgment, hell, and damnation. Here, my friends, you have the frightful but accurate picture of a hardened person. Now let us in the second place consider how a person falls into this terrible condition. There is a large denomination, the Calvinistic Reformed, which maintains that all those who are hardened are hardened because of an eternal, absolute counsel of God. They say that the Holy Scriptures say not only in a general way, so then he has mercy on whoever he wills, he hardened whomever he wills, Romans 9, but they especially mention that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. But this is a blasphemous application of this passage. We must not make God the author of sin and the damnation of a person. No, the Holy Scriptures expressly declare, You are not a God who delights in wickedness, Psalm 5. And again in James 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The scriptures also testify just as clearly that God does not wish, nor has he decided upon the ruin of a single person. We quote only two passages. Ezekiel writes, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33. Hosea, in chapter 13, says, He destroys you, O Israel. No one, therefore, need fear that God wants to harden him because he does not save him. No one can use that as an excuse. You will say, But is it not clearly stated in the Scriptures that God has actually hardened many people? Yes, 
But it shows just as clearly that God hardened no one, but he who first hardened himself through his contempt of grace. In our text, Christ says of the inhabitants of Jerusalem that why they finally became hardened was not because God had decided so from eternity, but we read, you did not know the time of your visitation. If God ever in great grace visited any person, these were the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Son of God himself, together with all his twelve apostles, had preached the gospel among them and a thousand times invited them into the kingdom of his grace. Faithfully, as the good shepherd, he went after them, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. For three long years he had sought them all, and with words, deeds, and tears called, admonished, begged, and implored. But they despised all this grace declined all these friendly invitations, yes, smote their loving helper in the face, persecuted, crucified, and killed him. Then God withdrew his gracious hand from those hardened people and summoned them to the judgment of a complete hardness of heart. Thus God acts at all times. No one becomes hardened who for a time was not first graciously visited. But if God's word is preached a long time to a person, he is admonished countless times with tears by his teachers, ministers, parents, and fellow believers. If he was admonished and reprimanded countless times by the conscience and by the Holy Spirit and was quickly moved through the surpassing grace of God, if he was often frightened like Felix over his sin over God's judgment, and if he is often persuaded to become a Christian through the workings of the Holy Spirit, as was King Agrippa, and if a person despises all this, stifles and suppresses it in himself, willfully and stubbornly and continually resists all efforts, and remains in his sins, pride and love of world and self-righteousness, then God often tires of showing mercy. Then he often says, as we read in Isaiah 1, Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Because God, according to his omniscience, foresees that such a person will despise all evidences of grace until his death, and let all the stirrings of his Holy Spirit be in vain, yes, will misuse it, he withdraws his gracious hand from him. This withdrawal of God's grace, the Holy Scriptures call a hardening. For if God no longer works in a, in, a, in a person, then by himself he will become even blinder, even harder, and ever more firmly tied to his sins and malice. As water by itself freezes if the warmth of the sun is withdrawn, and as a field left to itself becomes overgrown with weeds as if it, no lo- if it is no longer cultivated, so the heart of man becomes hardened, if God no longer lets the sun of his grace shine upon it, if he no longer cultivates it, nor lets the heavenly seed of his word fall upon it. Another important question now arises. Can also such a hardened person still be delivered from his terrible condition? Permit me now in the third place to speak to you of this. As frightful as the truth is, it still is a truth clearly taught in God's word. There is a hardening from which no deliverance is possible. Thus, for example, speaks already in the first chapter of the Proverbs of Solomon, Because I have called you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity 
I will mock when terror strikes you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. The author of the letter to Hebrews teaches the same thing when he writes in chapter 6, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So we see that there are hardened people, as the heathen, whom God has abandoned into a wrong mind to do what is of no use. They are those who have torn the last thread which tied them to God. They are like a tree whose roots have rotted off and which now becomes a dry trunk. It will never again become green, blossom, and bear fruit, even though it is transplanted in fertile soil and watered ever so diligently. Even here, sentence is pronounced upon them. Even here, the door of grace is closed. For such, there is no hope. Some, even here, in the feeling of despair, endure hell in their hearts and die with the foretaste of their certain damnation among great woe. Others live and die laughing and joking until they awaken from their dangerous dream in the pit of eternal death. However, my friends, do not suppose that for the sake of this doctrine, even a single person, though he be the greatest and most hardened of sinners, must despair of being delivered. For God wishes the death of absolutely no sinner. He would gladly save all, every one. Those who are lost are lost only because they absolutely do not want to let themselves be saved. If someone knows that he has a hardened heart, but detects a secret yearning within himself for God's grace and a deliverance from sin, he is just as certainly not beyond help, and certainly as all good in us is a gracious work of God. Men who are under the judgment of obduracy, from which there is no help, also become frightened but not because of their sins. The fright comes from the unhappiness into which they have hurled themselves. They yearn from help, not from their sins, but only from their misery. They also believe in God's wrath, if they awaken, but not in God's grace. They do not want to believe in it. The traitor Judas was in this condition. On the other hand, if you detect a yearning for freedom from sin and for grace, happy are you. There is still help for you. Do not despair when you feel your heart is like a stone. In the prophet Ezekiel, God has already given the promise that he will take the heart of stone from us and give us one of flesh. Do not despair when it seems to you as though your heart has become as hard as a diamond. Just listen to God's word. For it is, as God himself, a hammer which smashes even rocks. Do not despair if you must confess that you are as hardened as the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Bear in mind that even when they heard the preaching that they killed the Prince of Life and crucified the Lord of Glory, they still let their hearts be pierced and in terror cried out, What shall we do? Acts 2. They still repented and were saved. All of you, who perhaps have been often awakened by God's word, 
but have always resisted God. Do not add the greatest sin of all to your sins. Do not completely despair of God's grace. Bear in mind, today, a day of grace has dawned for you. Be converted. Despise no longer the grace offered to you. Begin to yearn for it. And if, in your opinion, you cannot, then hurl yourself at Jesus' feet as a lost sinner and let your dumb misery cry to him. He will again receive and save you. But today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Psalm 95. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, CFW Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.